Romans chapter 10, verse 1 through 13. Please follow along as I read. My brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? I'm going to preach on these verses, and I'm going to title my sermon today, How Good People Are Saved. How Good People Are Saved. Let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we ask that You would speak to us now, that You would use this time to edify us and grow us to save the lost. I pray, God, that You would help me to communicate with clarity Your truth, not merely my ideas, that You would open our hearts to receive it and to be shaped by it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, can good people be saved? Now, you might pause me and say, you're asking the wrong question. The real question is, can bad people be saved? And that's because you assume that good people have it easy. You assume that good people naturally can be saved. But church, there is no distinction between good people and bad people. Everybody, I believe, has a works-based righteousness set as their default, and everybody has failed to achieve righteousness as their outcome. Let me put it this way. My daughter Eden, who unfortunately is sick today and not here, my daughter Eden, uh, a couple years ago we bought her an iPhone 8, and she, over the years, loaded the iPhone 8 with apps and videos and photos and clogged up the memory. And then somehow in the process, she picked up a virus that really just took the rest of her memory to the point where her phone was not working. She could barely make a phone call. Uh, and then, then, then the straw that broke the camel's back was when Eden put as her new password for her phone the entire chorus for Willow Smith's Meet Me at Our Spot. 
all 73 characters. Imagine the, uh, uh, the margin of error. <laughs> she couldn't remember if she capitalized any of the words or had any spaces or may have spelled a word wrong. And so she completely locked herself out of her phone with that password. And so the inevitable came and we had to reset the phone to factory settings and take it back to its default. Many of us have made a mess of our own lives. We have loaded apps and memories that have messed us up. We have picked up a virus, uh, whether figuratively or literally in some cases. Uh, we, we are so jammed up in life that we wish we could just simply set, uh, reset our settings to factory settings, that we could go to our default and just start over with a clean slate. Here's the problem. I say all that to say this. Assume that we could. Assume you could click a button and just reset yourself to default. The problem is, is that there is no real clean slate default factory settings for any human being. Not only are we born into sin, but every human being, I believe, is, is by default at our factory settings coming out of the womb. We are wired for self-righteousness as a result of our sin. It's almost like if you could click restore factory settings and start it all over again. The sign that would come up on your screen would say, begin to prove yourself. It starts now. You see, the, my, my point is that every human being, having self-righteousness as our default, simultaneously fails every single time. Uh, we're all seeking to prove ourselves by what we do or what we wear, and we are always failing. So self-justification is the issue, and that's the issue with these first 13 verses of chapter 10 as it relates to the Jews and our evangelism, Paul's evangelism of the Jews. The biggest obstacle to the gospel is self-justification, meaning justification by faith is still our biggest issue. Like I'm always in my own personal evangelism preaching and trying to teach justification by faith alone through Christ alone. Because we're always believing that it has to do with, what, with, with us, what we can bring to the table. And most people don't admit that they're bad. Most people, and by the way, let me just say this. American culture is more leavened by Judeo-Christian values than we realize. And I'm not saying we're a Christian nation or ever have been a Christian nation. I'm saying that our laws are leavened by Judeo-Christian values more than we, we realize. Meaning, meaning we assume that it's wrong to murder. We assume uh, it's, it's general public assumption that uh, um, it's wrong to lie. 
or to steal, to take something that's not yours, or to commit adultery. I think that one is actually changing largely, but uh, by and large, most people would say it's good to be faithful to your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, whatever. And so therefore, in many ways, we're more like the Jews in Paul's day than we realize, meaning we're kind of the good, quote-unquote. We are the ones who have, you know, we haven't committed a murder. Um, we've been pretty faithful. You know, I've lied, but I'm not a liar. Um, I stole some things in the past, but I'm not like always stealing things from people. I'm actually pretty helpful. Uh, and so therefore, most people, I believe, think that they're actually the good ones. And that the bad ones are the murderers and the liars and the cheaters and these people who have these chronic sort of issues that are destroying society. So in verse 12, if we could just skip forward, Paul says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. We could read that to simply mean for us today there is no distinction between good people and bad people. There is no distinction between those who have been brought up with good morals following the law and those who have been brought up with bad morals not following the law. There is no distinction. Meaning all people, good and bad, equally need to be saved and the same Lord saves both categories. God is the God of the good and God is the God of the, the bad. He is the Savior of the good in the same way that He's the Savior of the bad. He's the Savior of the Jews in the same way that He's the Savior of the Gentiles. So Paul, in these first 13 verses of Romans chapter 10, is trying to motivate his reader to take the gospel to the Jews, or a.k.a. to the good people. Three things that he wants them to know about the, the Jews, three things that we can know about good people as we seek to take the gospel to the self-righteous. Number one, good people are pitiful. Good pe people are pitiful. And when I say pitiful, I mean pitiful, like literally, you know, the truest definition of that word. They are deserving of our pity. Paul pities the Jews. Look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 10. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If I could break these verses down for you, verse 1, we see Paul's desire that they might be saved. Verse 2, it begins with a for, meaning I'm going to give the reason for my desire. The reason he has desire, his heart's desire is that they would be saved is because they have a zeal not according to knowledge. They have a desire for God, but they are not informed by gospel knowledge. And, you know, Paul, remember the Apostle Paul, prior to his conversion, had a great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You know, Paul looked at the Jesus people, and he said, these people are destroying the true worship of Yahweh. And so he persecuted them. He looked at the Jesus people and he, he said they're, they're not following the Torah, the law, the, they're not holding to the strict Sabbath and the regulations and the dietary regulations of our day. And so Paul sought to have zeal for God through the persecution of the church. And so Paul then can pity his fellow Jewish brothers more than anybody. 
He's saying, he actually says in verse 2, he says, I bear them witness. Meaning, I've been there. I know what it's like to have a real zeal for Yahweh, for God. I, I real, like, I, I'm, I'm so strict in the way that I live my life. I'm so moral. I give up so much that other people freely delight in. Because I really have a zeal. But it's pitiful in that it's not informed. It's based on your self-righteousness. And that's what he goes on to tell us. One quick application, though, at this point is, is this. Ignorance does not mean innocence. You see, sometimes I've heard this, people say this kind of stuff a lot. They'll say something like, you know, he, he, he loves God. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but he genuinely loves God. Well, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God, the Father, but through me. And Paul in Romans 1.20 says that they are without excuse. So, so our ignorance doesn't get us off the hook. Nobody's saved because they didn't have enough knowledge. And so he looks at them with pity, but that pity is really informed by the fact that they're going to hell. That they are without excuse. And so he wants them to know the true knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So verse 3 then states the problem. They're ignorant of God's righteousness, he says. Now this can mean uh, two things, and I think it means both things. One, they're ignorant of God's own holiness. You see, anybody who believes that you can on your own, in your own self-righteousness, somehow earn favor with God, your first problem is that you don't understand God. You don't have a high view of God's own holiness. There is no stain or wrinkle with God. There is no sin with God. And as a result of not knowing God's holiness, you don't understand how God makes us holy. You see, the great twist here is that we are justified, we're made right before God, not because of our own self-righteousness, but because of God's own righteousness. So when he says they're ignorant of God's righteousness, they're saying that he's saying they're ignorant of how God bestows His righteousness on repentant sinners. Sin has so corrupted the human being that we are unable to attain salvation in any way, shape, or form on our own. And in verse 3, he says that they did not submit to, to God's righteousness. Now, God's righteousness, going on to verse 4, the very next two words, he says, for Christ, meaning he's defining God's righteousness as Christ himself. So what he's saying is, is that they are without excuse, they are under God's judgment for their ignorance of a wrong kind of pursuit, a self-righteous pursuit of justification because they did not submit to the one who is truly righteous, the only way to righteousness. And that is Jesus Christ, verse 4, because Christ, verse 4, is the end of the law to everyone who believes. This means that the law was all the time pointing us toward Christ. 
Uh, he's the telos of the law. He is the, the goal of the law. Uh, he's where the law was leading. If we think of like a long winding pathway through the woods and there's a, a final destination, Christ was and is the final destination of the law. And so by them not submitting to Christ, they did not actually fulfill the, uh, the righteousness of the law because he is the righteousness of the law. And in addition, what he's saying is, is that Christ has ended the law. Not in the sense that we are free to sin, but in, this, in, the, in the sense that Christ has achieved the blessings of the law. Christ has been obedient completely to the law. And the only way now to attain the righteousness of the law is to enter into the end of the law, which is Christ himself. And so we miss Christ, and what he's saying is, is we miss all righteousness. The only way to achieve righteousness, then, is to come under the authority and submission of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are act, interacting with the self-righteous, when you're seeking to share the gospel with people who think that they are good enough, church, number one, I want you just to have pity on them. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean that in a Christ-centered way, as Christ looks at those who just nailed him to the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's pity. That's love. It's not an excuse. It's not innocence. It's longing. It's a heart's desire. Have pity on, have pity on good people. Secondly, good people are profitless. Good people are to be pitied, and good people are profitless. First, as we look at Paul's heart for the Jews, he sees, we see that his heart breaks for them with pity. Secondly, we see that there is no reward in all of their work, in all of their self-denial, in all of their asceticism, in all of their law-following, in all of their rule-keeping. There is no profit. And that's why he pities them. You see, we wrongly misconstrue success as defined by what we do and what we wear. I'm reading this book by John Perkins, one of his older books. He was a uh, civil rights era pastor, 1960s, and uh, I, I read this sermon or this, this testimony of a guy named Her Herman. It was one of the first guys that he had discipled when he was a young pastor. And Perkins was pushing back against this idea that success is something that you can buy with money. And the man eventually gave a testimony of how he became a Christian and how he came under the influence of Perkins' ministry and ultimately the influence of Christ. And Herman said this. He said, Reverend Perkins got up to give a little message, and I still remember it. He talked about what is success. He spoke from the book of Daniel how God made Daniel what he was. He said success isn't something you wear, like clothes or a car. Success is something you are. Jesus Christ can make you a success. He can make you a son. A son of God. And you can work for him. 
You see, Paul's real understanding of success here has nothing to do with our good works or our accomplishments or what we wear. But rather, it all has to do with looking to God through Christ and finding in Him all that we are. So in verses 5 and 7, Paul, Paul, what he does is he roots his teaching here in the Old Testament, which, by the way, that's what Paul's been doing through Romans. He keeps going back to the old, saying, look, I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm teaching you God's plan from the beginning. It's always been God's way. It's always been God's way that he would save people by grace through faith. And I'm showing you from Moses, Paul is saying. So that's what he does in verses 5 through 7. First, he quotes Moses uh, in verses 6 and 7, or verse, uh, uh, verse 5 rather. He quotes Moses in Leviticus 18.5. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them, Moses says. Well, that's true in theory. If you could follow all of God's commandments, you would have life. It's never been true of one individual who's ever lived, minus Christ. We'll get there. It's never been true of any of us. Meaning, in theory, if you could obey God completely, you would be restored to fellowship with God. Christ is the only one who could perfectly obey God. Christ is the only one of whom this applies. You see, covenantal blessings are attached to covenantal obedience. Let me give you an example. If I were to buy a new car and sign a lease on it, and I, in my lease, my agreement, it says that I'll pay $400 a month uh, for the car. What does that mean? It means that if I pay $400 a month, I can do what? I can drive the car. For those of you who have defaulted on a car loan, help me out here. What happens if you stop paying the $400 a month? Thank you for your honesty. You lose the car, all right? This is how the Mosaic Covenant worked. If we obey the Mosaic Covenant, we have the blessings of being in the land and enjoying the presence of God. But if we disobey, God will cut us off from the land and cut us off from His presence, meaning nobody was ever saved through following the Mosaic Law. Nobody could ever do it. The mode of salvation has always been by grace through faith. And what He's telling us is that Christ has. So look at verse 6 and 7. He quotes Deuteronomy 30. He goes on, verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. Now Paul, in the parentheses, Paul's giving his own exposition of that verse. That is to bring Christ down, he says. Verse 7, Or who will ascend into the abyss? Paul's explanation, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Paul's explanation, That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Paul's explanation, uh, uh, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. 
as Paul is expounding and explaining Moses' teaching, God's Word in the law, what he's saying is this. He's saying this is what it really meant, what it means for us today. Don't act like it's your job to go up into the heavens to help Jesus come down. He doesn't need your help. As a matter of fact, He's already come. And don't act like it's your job to enter into the grave to help Jesus rise up from the dead. He's already risen. See, the the insanity of self-righteousness is to believe that in some fashion we can help God save us. That in some fashion we can contribute to our own righteousness. And it is as ridiculous as saying, I'm going to help Jesus die for my sins. I'm going to help Jesus live a life of perfect righteousness. It would be as if you've got to go in for heart surgery and you ask for just a local anesthetic. I don't know if that's possible with heart surgery. Probably not. And, and you're lying there, and you're like, I, I, I need to help a little bit, you know? And so you're kind of holding your chest open, and scalpel, you know? And then you take it, and like, let me actually, I think it's right here, you know? There's the little valve. That, and then you take like a little, uh, what do they use? Like a little um, pipe cleaner to clean out the, the, I don't know what they do. And so you're just kind of working on your, like that's insanity. I don't care how much skill you have as a surgeon. If you're going into heart surgery, you're going to sleep, all right? You're going to be as good as dead. And you're going to submit entirely to the skills and abilities and gifts of the surgeon. And this is salvation, saints. We were dead in our trespasses and sins when Christ died for us. We did nothing to contribute to our salvation. As a matter of fact, He came and died for your sins 2,000 years before you were even born. This is what he's saying. It's insanity to believe that we could just go to heaven and help Christ come to earth. That we could go to hell and help Christ rise from the dead. The work has been done. Somebody say amen. Amen. Quoting Moses means salvation has always been by grace through faith. A good person who thinks they have the right moral swag and ability is to be pitied. Why? Because in all of their work, it's profitless. It's for nothing. Third thing, third thing, good people can be saved. So therefore, here's my third point. Good people are pursued. Let me give them to you. Good good people are pitiful. Good people are profitless. And good people are pursued. Paul says, my heart's desire is that they might know. Pretty soon we're going to get the pursuit to, to go after them. And how beautiful are the feet of those who go after them. Look at verse 9 and 10. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard this verse, if not memorized this verse. Verse 9 and 10, it says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
Here, it's clearly taught that we see salvation kind of happening in, happening in this two-stage process. And I don't mean that there's a two-stage process in that there's time between these stages, but it's twofold. There is belief in one's heart and confession with one's mouth. And it happens in that way. We don't confess with our mouth and then believe with our heart. But rather, our confession with our mouth that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, risen from the dead, that begins with belief in one's heart. For with the heart, he says, one believes. Not merely the mind. Notice he doesn't say with the mind one believes. And you see, this is what separates the regenerate from the unregenerate. Many people will say, well, I believe with my mind. Many people will say, I, I assent to the facts that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for my sins and that I can have salvation through him. All mental belief, but it's never changed me. It's never transformed me. It's never been who, uh, my, my, my sense of being. I've never found myself, myself in Christ. Uh, I, I, I don't look at Christ and see me. Uh, I, I, I don't love Christ. Why? It's because I believed with my mind. But he says, believe with your heart. What does that mean? To believe with one's heart means that the very essence of your being falls into Christ. The essence of your being submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that we turn from self-justification and turn to Christ, that uh, we say, for I know that nothing good dwells within me. And we look to him and we find in him all of the salvation and forgiveness and righteousness that we need. To the point that we just discover that we've died to ourselves and we've been raised to new life in Jesus. And we can clearly and confidently say, I am in Christ. Believe with your heart. And then he goes on to say, he goes on to say that we then confess with our mouth. Now, this is not merely just saying words. Paul's not giving us a formula here. I don't want to turn this into a formula. But there is some kind of confession that happens. Now, if a person honestly cannot speak, uh, their, their confession is going to look different than the person who can vocalize. Does that make sense? Meaning, Paul is not intending here to add a new kind of law, some kind of formula for us. But rather, what he's saying is, is that the person who believes in their heart does not keep Christ hidden, but they confess Him. Certainly through baptism, and most always prior to baptism, they are praying, they are shouting, they are singing, they are telling people that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some ways, church, this is the history of, uh, or this is the practice, or this is the, let me, let, me, let me say this the way I want to say it. This is the uh, scripture behind the practice of the sinner's prayer. Uh, for those of you that grew up in church, you may be familiar with the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is uh, often a prayer that is used in evangelism when people are coming to Christ, and it goes something like this. I believe, God, that you are holy. I believe that I am a sinner. 
deserving your judgment, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. And I confess that He is the Lord of my life. I trust in Him. Thank you for saving me. Something simple like that. And in practice, throughout decades, it has been used in evangelism in a repetitive sort of way, like repeat after me. Pray this prayer. Now, good idea, bad idea. Let's have a little conversation. But only I get to talk, all right? This is the the fun part of preaching. (laughs) Um, Well, it can, be, it, it can be abused. It can be abused. Let me tell you how it can, can be abused. It can be turned into a workspace formula, meaning this is something that you have to say, and you've got to get it right. Let me use my own uh, story as an example. When I, when I was a kid, I went to a backyard Bible club in our neighborhood, and I remember sitting there in this person's living room, and I don't even know who the lady was that was leading it. I was there because they were giving away freebies. And uh, uh, we, they went through a little Bible story and a little uh, explanation of the gospel. And then she said, if you want to be saved, just repeat these words. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. Now, I've already done it 150 times by that point in my life, all right? <laughs> but, I, I'm, you know, I'm not sure if it stuck. Maybe I didn't say the right formula. Maybe I didn't say the right words. And so I was listening really closely. Dear Jesus... I believe that I'm a sinner. And so I'm going through, and at some point I missed one word that she said, and I was like, oh gosh. Screwed this one up. And then when she had finished, she said, you know, if you prayed that prayer, raise your hand. And she said, if you prayed that prayer, you are saved. You see, this would be the abuse of it. Paul does not say, if you confess the Lord Jesus Christ through praying a certain kind of formulaic prayer that you are now saved. Notice, it starts with if you believe in your heart. We can't separate some kind of formulaic confession from true belief and true repentance. That's what it means to be saved. Confession is sort of the overflow of salvation. It's what comes because you're saved, not to get saved, you see. However, here's why I like the sinner's prayer. It's true. It's beautiful. It's the gospel. It ought to be on our lips every day. Every morning we ought to be waking up praying the sinner's prayer. God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I admit that I'm a sinner. I see Christ died on my cross, the sins for my Uh, the cross for my sins, and I receive him as my Savior. And I'm not saying we get saved every time we pray that prayer. That's the point. I'm saying it's the prayer of the believer and of the sinner who's repenting of their sins. And it can be useful, by the way, in your evangelism. It really, like often in my personal evangelism with people, they're clearly at the point of like believing and repentance. But I, I find that a lot of folks do evangelism and they don't really know how to help somebody kind of like embrace like the confidence of their salvation. And so I just invite people, confess it to God. You believe it? Yes, you do? Great. Confess it to God. Tell, and, and I'll just say, why don't you just pray to God right now and just tell God that you, you believe. And, and, and then I just let them go. And their prayer is usually a lot better than some kind of formula that I can give them. You know? And so, so 
It's good and right to have somebody pray and turn to God and confess. It's actually not only right, it is biblical. It's biblical to confess. Now, now, my point, though, is this, is that what Paul's getting at here is not adding a new work of righteousness, but rather he's saying that salvation comes through what? Faith. Right? You with me? Not by works. Thank you. That's right. Now, why is Paul emphasizing salvation through faith? Look at verses 13 through, uh, 11 through 13. He says, he explains it. For the Scriptures say, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing on all or I'm sorry, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there a distinction between Jew and Gentile? No. The, you see, the Gospel demands. The Gospel demands, and not only demands, but creates reconciliation between all races, ethnicities, people groups, tribes, and languages. White folk, black folk, Asian folk, Latino, Jew, Gentile, all reconciled at the cross. Why? It's because we all come to the cross in the same way. Broken. And the old saying, the, uh, the, what's, how does the old saying go? The, 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 the ground is level at the cross. Did I get that right? It's something like that. Close enough. This is the great hypocrisy, by the way, with, with racism. So, I told you I'm reading this book by John Perkins, 1960s. He's an African American minister in Mississippi. In his book, he talks about how when he was new, uh, as, as a new minister, kind of trying to get to know the, the churches in Mendenhall, Mississippi. He goes to this white church, and there was a big sign out front that says, Revival, all welcome, no blacks. Mind-blowing. This is, this is within a generation. All right, this is what, 80 years ago, if that. The hypocrisy of being able to come to the cross and say, oh, I deserve it. I, I, I somehow come to God for His grace and mercy, but somehow there's not enough space for somebody who's not like me. You know, slaveholders would refuse to evangelize and baptize their slaves. because they were afraid that their slaves would find freedom. And it wasn't until the law was officially changed and that slaves could not be freed at their baptism that now slave owners were willing to evangelize and baptize their slaves. Such hypocrisy. This is why Spurgeon, so Spurgeon, London minister, looking at American slavery, Spurgeon said this, he said, I do in my inmost soul detest slavery everywhere and anywhere. And although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, 
Yet with a slaveholder, I have no fellowship of any sort. Whenever one has called upon me, I have considered it my duty to express my detestation of this wickedness and would soon think of receiving a murderer into my church or into any sort of friendship, but not a man-stealer. Why? It's because racism is a denial of the gospel. It's to say that there is distinction between us and that not all are welcome at this table. It's to, come to, it's to come to Christ as nothing and look down on somebody else. You see, more than, more than reconciliation, more than justice, what Paul's getting at here is to erase any distinction at all between those who think they are good and those who think they are bad. And he's saying there is no distinction between anybody, Jew and Greek, the two greatest distinctions that they had in their day, in their culture. What levels us then is not our goodness, but our sin. So Paul, looking at them, doesn't stop with sin, but then he says there's also no distinction in who God saves. He goes on to talk about the riches of God indiscriminately going to Jew and to Greek. What he, what he means is that as we are all saved in the same way, we are all brought up richly as sons of God in the same way. And we equally receive the riches of, of God. Verse 12, look at verse 12. He says, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches. You see, He doesn't just stop with sinners. Bestowing his riches, his riches on all who call on his name. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is the benevolent one. He is rich in mercy. He's loaded with grace. He's wealthy with kindness. Look, if, if you were hungry and you were to come to my house and say, hey, I, I, I'm hungry, I would in a heartbeat go to my fridge and make a sandwich for you. Now, if you go tell your friends, all who are hungry can go to Joel's house and get a sandwich, I would love to be able to do that. I just can't. You know, and I, open the, I hear my bell ring, and I open the door, and I see you there, and down McCullough Street, and down North Avenue, all the way down to Bel Air Road, quarter of the city lined up for a sandwich at my house. You know, in my, in my right mind, I cannot broadcast all who are hungry can come get a sandwich at my house because I don't have the resources to do so. I'm sorry. I can't. But... Do you know this Lord? Do you know that He has an infinite amount of resources? Saints, God will never run out of His mercy. Christ's body and blood is enough to feed us all. God's kitchen of salvation will never run empty. He has the ability to save an infinite number. God, in His inspired and inerrant word, broadcast more than any book can be broadcast, has said right here in Romans 10, 
uh, uh, 13, all who call on Him. It is broadcasted to every nation and every language and every tribe and every people group. Billions of people across time and history and alive today have received this invitation to come to His house for dinner. To come to His kitchen for grace and for mercy. And He will never run out. His, 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 his salvation is good. His salvation is good for those who think they are rich and those who think they are poor. It's good for the do-gooder and good for the screw-up. It's good for the morally upright and it's good for the morally bankrupt. Do you know this Lord? I want to invite you this morning to run to His righteousness. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but through Christ Jesus. But God loves us. And He so loved the world that He sent His only Son. And whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Trust in His righteousness. Come all who are hungry and eat at His table. It never runs dry. Yes, we say, you, Lord, are righteous. That's what faith says. Yes, you, Lord, are powerful. Yes, you, Lord, are mighty to save. How wonderful, church, is His invitation. How wonderful and marvelous is His ability. How, how great is our salvation. Now, to Him who is able, to the only wise God, our Savior, to Him be glory forever and ever. So praise Him, church, for He is good. I said praise Him, for He is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, that You are good and that Your righteousness saves us. God, we pray that many people would turn to Christ and trust in Him alone for salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.